verse 22. Maybe that's what I was thinking. If you have uh, one of our blue Bibles, that's on page 896. <clears throat> John chapter, 20, chapter 10, <laughs> verse 22 through 42. Lord, help me, right? All right. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for good works that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in the law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father." Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So we're continuing in, in John chapter 10. I'm going to start right off the bat with our truth statement. And I've gotten some feedback recently about truth statement and what does it mean, truth statement. Uh, hopefully, Greg, everything you're saying is true in the sermon. This isn't like the one thing. So you can just think of this as the main point or, or the preaching point. I hope that, that you walk away with this. So our truth statement for today, everything Jesus did and said, told of his union with the Father, that he was the Messiah and the Son of God. And this Jewish crowd wanted to separate Jesus from, from God the Father. They had no problem confessing that the Father was God, but they would not, would not confess that Jesus was God. They needed to see that Jesus and the Father are one. So verses 22 and 23. At that time, the, at the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So, Feast of Dedication, about 167 B.C., um, the temple uh, was taken over by Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, they, they erected an altar to Zeus, which took the place of Israel's altar to Yahweh. The Jews were, were oppressed at this time. Even uh, possessing the Hebrew Scriptures was a capital offense. But there was an underground um, revolt that, that was picking up steam and led by Judas Maccabees, which I found out, I didn't know this, that his nickname was Judas the Hammer. 
right? That's awesome. Like, if you're going to be in a revolt, you want your leader to have a nickname like that. So anyway, Judas the Hammer uh, successfully led this revolt, and, and, and they, uh, they recaptured the temple, and they rededicated the temple. Um, so the people celebrated, and, and they decided every year we're going to celebrate this. For eight days, we're going to celebrate the, the Feast of Dedif- Dedication, also known as the Feast of Lights. And the Jewish people in their homes would, would light candles to remember what, what God had done and that they could worship again in the temple. The, the, this detail helps the story along. It certainly gives us a chronological marker. But as always, I think John actually wants us to look at Jesus and see that he's the fulfillment of this feast. The Feast of Dedication celebrated the rededicating of the temple as the sanctuary of the living God. Jesus is the one whom the Father has dedicated from all eternity as the meeting place of God and humanity. Jesus is the sanctuary in and through whom the living God may be approached and worshiped. So it's wintertime, um, which is probably why Jesus was where he was. Instead of being out in the open, the, the cold temperatures may have forced them into Solomon's colonnade, as they called it. But what's really interesting here, we're about to see this Jewish crowd deny that Jesus is the Christ. And, and then months from now, we find out in, in Acts multiple times, it's, it's mentioned that the early church gathered in, in this very place, in Solomon's colonnade, and, and they proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 24, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And on the surface, this seems like a really good question. Like if, if you're the Christ, Jesus, we need to know. Um, but there's more to this. Some actually think it maybe should be translated. I don't, I don't know if this is right, but some think maybe it should be translated. How long are you going to annoy us? Just tell us if you're the Christ. Because this crowd, they were looking for a reason to kill Jesus. They wanted him to be plain so that they could pick up stones and, and take care of this problem right now. Verse 25, Jesus answered them. He said, I told you, and you do not believe. He didn't say, I, I plainly told you. And I don't want to make too much of the absence of that word plainly, but I, I don't think that Jesus in the open was, was plain that he was the Messiah before the crowds. He was plain with the Samaritan woman in Acts 4. I think he was plain. I think he was clear with, uh, with the man that was born blind. But with the crowds, he wasn't often plain. You could argue that, that Jesus didn't do much plainly at all. His answers always come from an angle that surprises me as I read the Gospel of John. Many times you read how Jesus responds to a question and, and the answer is anything but plain. So plain or not, Jesus says, I did tell you. I, I told you and, and you don't believe. So how did he tell them? Well, his actions certainly pointed to Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. His words, his use of, of, of the Hebrew Bible, all these things pointed to him as the Messiah. And then continuing in verse 25, he said, the works, the works that I do in my Father's name, they, they bear witness about me. At, at least, he's later in the passage, he's going to say, at least, like, see the works and believe because of the works. But his words, his works, his teaching, all of them pointed to Jesus as the Christ. But, but not, 
not the Christ, not the Messiah that, that they had imagined. And I wonder if that's maybe why he wasn't plain with them. Because a plain answer to, are, the, are you the Messiah, probably would have led to confusion because of what they imagined the Messiah to be. They, they saw a political savior, a, a military leader, and so on. The suffering servant Messiah, that, that, was not, that was not in their paradigm. Even as Jesus revealed to the disciples some of what was coming, they got confused. So when he says, I did tell you, he didn't explicitly tell the crowds. However, the, the words and deeds of Jesus, they, they pointed to him as Messiah. We look back to John chapter 9 that Matt, Matt preached a couple weeks ago. In verse 32, the man born blind says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So this blind man was able to connect the dots. That, that what Jesus did was absolutely spectacular. No, no mere man could do this. Jesus' deeds displayed that the power is from God. That, that he was connected to God. And this passage tells us he's, he's one with God. Jesus' words to the man next clarify. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And then he responds, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So Jesus' words and deeds together, they definitely tell us that, that Jesus is the Christ. Christians, do our words and deeds tell this world that Jesus is the Christ, that God has come in the flesh to save. As Christians, I think we're susceptible to doing one well, right? Either we're really good with, with biblical words, gospel words, or, or we're really good at serving well and, and, and doing good gospel deeds. And yet Christians seem to struggle with doing both together really well. Jesus, obviously, he did both well. His actions weren't void of clear gospel truth. The truth he spoke was accompanied by powerful works from the Father. So if you talk about Jesus, but your life doesn't reflect God's goodness, his grace, his loving kindness, his compassion, his care, it seems to me that maybe you're not being an accurate ambassador. Or if you're trying to conquer the, conquer the world's problems, doing great sacrificial work, but not connecting through words the hope that you have in Jesus. You may be alleviating suffering in this life, but not eternal suffering. Our words and our deeds, there's, there's got to be a congruency there as we live before a world that desperately needs Jesus. Jesus spoke the gospel, and his works powerfully pointed to our need for him as the one who is mighty to save. Verse 26 Jesus said, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Jesus says, at least to my brain, this is a peculiar way he speaks because my brain wants to reorder. He said, you do not believe because you're not my sheep, but my brain, my brain flips it. I expect the order to be, you're not among my sheep because you do not believe. I don't know if you see the difference there. My brain 
wants belief or unbelief to be the reason someone is or isn't a sheep. Like, do you follow that? That's, that's how I want to order it. But Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. And I, I wonder if, if my inclination is that, man, I just want to play a bigger role in, in, in salvation. Right? But, but Jesus doesn't say that. He says the opposite. He says, you don't believe because you aren't my sheep. Which just tells us that God is at work before you've done anything to respond to him. And, and I think that's really incredible. But that God's grace is at work before you, you've done anything to believe. We certainly respond by believing. I think that's really, really clear. But even then, we need God to help us believe. We need to, the Spirit to do that in us. We need God to, to open up our chest cavity and take that heart of stone, remove it, and replace it with the heart of flesh. Like Gary told us about the sheep last week. I don't know if you were here um, but sheep aren't very smart, and uh, Jesus called us sheep. <laughs> we need the shepherd to act. Uh, uh, we die on our own. We are dead on our own in our sin. So Jesus here tells us, you belong to him before you ever come to him. You belong to Christ before you even wonder if you could possibly trust Christ. And I say this hoping that that actually gives you some security, that his grace is at work in you because his grace is at work in you. It isn't because of something you did or didn't do. You aren't going to mess it up. God has said you are his and will work to bring about that belief in you. That's security. We haven't even got to the part where he says, nobody's going to snatch you from me. But apart from, apart from God's work in you, you're stuck. You're lifeless. You're, you're unable to save yourself. We need God to make us his own so that we can believe in him. And humanly speaking, we look around, and we can't tell who is God's own uh, before they respond in belief. And, and even sometimes then we're like, is that for real? But we don't know. But we're, we're, we're charged to go and, and be faithful and, and speak to people about Jesus because we know that God is gathering his people that more and more people will respond by believing because they are his. Someone who doesn't believe needs God to work in their heart. They're dependent on God's gracious work to bring about belief. So if you recognize today you don't believe in Jesus, pray that he would graciously make you one of his own, that he would help you to believe. Pray that he'll take a heart that is hard towards him and give you a heart that loves Jesus, a heart that beats faster when you hear about Jesus, a heart that goes from being against Jesus to a heart that longs for Jesus. Verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. It says, My sheep hear my voice. They, they know my voice. And it is incredible to think, just based off sound, not even words, but how when you're around someone long enough, like, you know it's them. Like, maybe you work in an office or a cubicle, and, and a person's coming to talk to you, and before they ever say a word, you know, oh, that's Jim from accounting or whatever. Um, maybe it's on the way, the, the pace uh, of their steps. Maybe it's, maybe it's the way they knock on your door or don't knock on your door and, and just barge right in. But, but we get familiar, and, and we know, and, and certainly this is true with roommates or, or family. Um, how much more so do we, do we know the voice of a loved one? Jesus said, my sheep, my people, 
they know my voice. There's, there's an intimacy that they hear my voice. When we speak of knowing Jesus, it isn't knowing just facts about Jesus, but it's actually knowing Jesus. And as Pastor Gary pointed out last week from the passage, this relationship that we get to have with Christ is incredible. Right? Jesus says, you can know me like I know the Father. This is an incredible statement about how we can, how we can know God, the intimacy of this relationship. So do you know the voice of God? Do you know Jesus' voice? Christians, do you know him? Part of this is, is daily familiarity. Right? This is why we talk so much about Bible read-through or, or the men's Bible study on Wednesday nights or the women's Bible study that's going to be starting up here soon. Even if you're not a part of one of those, just get together and read, read Scripture with someone. The more you're in it, the more familiar you will be with the voice of Jesus. Back in chapter 8, verse 47, he said, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. God's people hear and know his voice. But you don't just recognize his voice as a Christian. You follow it. You're obedient to it. And this obedience is good for you. Right? It's, it's for your safety, certainly, but it's not just for your safety. As last week's passage remind us, reminds us that Jesus saves us from our sin and he gives abundant life. Not life that's hanging on by life support, but abundant life, life that is overflowing. I don't mean overflowing with, with stuff. I mean overflowing with, with peace, with joy, with knowing Christ, with security in him. So following Jesus' voice isn't just good for you. It's actually the best for you. Even if that voice leads you, as Pastor Gary read in Psalm 23, through the valley of the shadow of death, there's no need to fear because Jesus, the life giver, your good shepherd, is with you. Verse 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus gives life that is forever. He is the life giver. He's the author of life. And not only does he give that life, but he promises to keep his people secure. The one who knows Jesus has nothing to fear. Verse 28 reminds us of the power of the Son's mighty hands that no one can snatch him. No one can take you from Jesus. Jesus has the power to save you from sin and death and the power to keep you. There's no place that is more secure than being in Christ. And I, I wish, if you struggle with your security in Jesus, go read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. I don't have time to do it right now, but it, I, I, love, I love that whole chapter. No one can snatch, no, no thing can snatch you out of the security of Jesus. Not your past, your present, your future. If you are his, he has you. Verse 29, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So three, three observations from there. He says that the Father has given the sheep to Jesus, right? He already possesses them, and he then gives them, gifts them to Jesus. Second thing, he says, no one is greater than the Father. There's, there's nothing greater than God the Father. And three, therefore, no one can be snatched out of the Father's hand. So no one's snatching out of Jesus' hand, no one snatching out of the Father's hand. This is a passage, several other passages in the Bible that, that 
lead us to the, the doctrine of eternal security. Or maybe you've heard once saved, always saved, that, that Jesus is not losing any of his people. So what do we do then with, with people who sure look like they were genuine followers um, of Jesus? And, and I have many, many people in my life that fall in this category that, that to me, looked like they were falling hard after Christ. And now I look, and years later, they appear to have nothing to do with Christ. I, I see things pretty simply. Uh, there's two options that I see here. Maybe there's others, but I've just got two. One is they really didn't know Jesus. The, 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 what looked like belief w- w- never took root. It, it was never, it, they never actually knew Jesus. Or two, their story isn't done yet. It may look like they're done with Jesus, but Jesus is not done with them. Who knows how Jesus is at work, but his sheep will not be snatched from the hands of the good shepherd. So we know that, that God is working to sustain believers. We know that God is after his sheep. Um, James 5.20 tells us that we need to be a part of those people that, that seem to have walked away from Jesus to, to win them back. Um, we, we are our brother's keeper. Like Cain was wrong. When, when, when God asked him, where's your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, Cain, you are, and you blew it. We, as a church, we're, we're supposed to take an active role in each other, continuing to follow after Jesus. As Hebrews 4, uh, or sorry, 3, 13 and 14 says, like we need to be using all of our gifts. God has gifted each believer to edify the body. Right? We're supposed to come and be active in one another's lives so that we may continue in Jesus. Back to the security of Jesus, Colossians 3, 3. It says, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I love that. You guys know, or a lot of you know, I'm sure, we, we adopted a couple years ago. And uh, Maddie, uh, she'll be four. I can't believe it. She'll be four in January here. Um, and Maddie, uh, at first, uh, she, she wanted to be held. I've told you this before. She wanted to be held, like the very first day we got her. Um, but she also pushed her body as far away from you as she could, right? So it made holding her, like, pretty hard. So it was like I was holding her out here all the time. Like, she wanted that security. She wanted that closeness, but not too close. And I don't remember when it changed. But suddenly I remember, or suddenly I realized, like, man, that's gone. Like, she's not stiff-arming me as I hold her anymore. Like, she just wants to be held. And she wants to be held, you know, more than any of our other kids. And I assume, I assume there's, you know, a ton of stuff with the adoption going on there. Um, but even still, like, Maddie, she needs that security in us in, just in a different way than our other kids did at the same age. Uh, I could... I could be in the house with her and, and just run something out to the, the little recycling bin in, in my garage. And, and if it's longer than she wants it to be, she loses it. I mean, she just starts bawling, and she just stands there and wants me to hold her. Man, I see this passage. We've died with Christ, Colossians 3.3, 3, and your life, your life is hidden with Christ in God. No, no power of hell, as we just sang, no power of hell, no scheme of man could ever pluck me from his hand. I'm his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ I stand. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Verses 28 and 29 affirm that 
both the Father and Son are, are able to keep us. Verse 30 speaks to the perfect union Jesus has with the Father, and, and he connects it. He connects his oneness with the Father to the preservation of his sheep. They're, they're, they're perfectly one in will and in action in every way. But highlighted here specifically, I think, is, is that they're going to keep their sheep. They're going to keep their sheep safe. And this union goes, goes deeper than just will or task. There's, there's a mutual indwelling in here. Jesus is saying he is God. Earlier, I think the Jews thought Jesus was claiming to be like a rival God. Jesus saying, no, we're not, we're not separate. We're not rivals. The Father and I are one. We don't get into the Trinity here, but God in three persons, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. So I think there's two reasons he, he's giving us that this oneness matters in this passage. First is Jesus is God. Everything he has said and done is true. He's the Christ who alone can save from sin and death. And the second is the oneness of the Father and the Son, mean the believers have total confidence. Everyone who's saved should have total confidence that he will never let you go. Verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And my guess is a lot of you, maybe all of us, have heard this over and over again. Not, not just in this gospel, but we, we've read this before. They pick up stones, but I think it's, it's hard for us to realize how intense this is. Right? All they see is red right now. They just want to kill him. And they don't just want to kill him, but they've actually picked up their weapon and they're ready to kill. So Jesus... He comes back in verse 32. He says, oh, oh, sorry. And last time we saw this, what did Jesus do when they picked up the stones? He got out of there. And even then, it felt like he was cutting it too close. But let's see what he does here. He says, uh, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Right? Jesus said, I, I, I've done works in, in, in the Father's name. These are from the Father. They bear witness these works point to who I am. These are good works. Some translations actually say great works. Which of these are you going to stone me for? Is it, is it for the, the guy who's 38 that was lame, that I healed? Or, or was it restoring the sight of the blind? Which of these works do not line up with your religion? Are they out of line with who you think God is? Verse 33, the Jews answered him, It's not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. It's not the works. They're going to stone him, and they talk about it as if it's a done deal. It's coming. We're going to stone you for blasphemy. The good works don't even seem to matter to them. They acknowledge them, but they can't see them, and they can explain away anything that Jesus seems to throw at them. And I'm sure you've experienced that with someone you told someone about Jesus. You, in your mind, Jesus is clearly displayed for them, and, and they have all these reasons not to believe. They can explain anything away. And the reason the crowd gives for the stoning that's coming is, or they think is coming, is blasphemy. They said, by making yourself God, which is obviously so ironic. Jesus didn't make himself God. He is God. Right? Chapter 1 told us he's the Word, and the Word was, with, the word was, was God, and the Word was with God. In their minds, it was impossible to think that God would become a man, but that's exactly what Jesus did. Humbled himself, took on flesh, or as Pastor Gary put it last week, he added humanity to his deity. 
And there are religions that think that God would never defile himself by becoming man, that, that, that Jesus being God is impossible. Jesus did what we would never think to do. He loved us more than we can understand, and we're in such desperate need that he became the God-man in order to die the death we deserve to die, taking our place. This Jewish crowd could not believe that God would do such a thing, and they're ready to kill him. And, and Jesus knew that they were done with him, but he was not done with them. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Verse 35, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blasphemy, because I said, I'm the Son of God. That's all really clear, right? There we go. A couple people are awake. Uh, so he, he said, is it not written in your law? I say you are gods. This is from Psalm 82. Okay, verses 6 and 7. I'll read those for you. Uh, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So Jesus says, hey, it written, in, written in the word, right? Didn't God say to men, you are, son, uh, you are gods, lowercase g, gods, right? The sons of the Most High. But like all men, they'll die. Well, if he called men gods, how much more sense does it make to call the one whom is sent by the Father, Jesus himself, the Son of God? And maybe I just explained that, and you're still thinking, what? And I actually think that's exactly what Jesus intended. Have you heard of electrofishing? Um, maybe not. I just heard about it this summer. So fish and wildlife departments, I don't know if all states do this, but fish and wildlife departments that want to go and check up on, on different kinds of fish, they've got a boat. The boat has a generator on it, and it's got these booms or these poles that go out into the water, and they flip that generator on, and electricity is sent out into the water, like a six, eight-foot radius, right? All the fish that swim through there, it stuns them. They float up to the top. The, the fish and wildlife people, I imagine they gently gather them, and they weigh them and measure them and take blood samples, whatever they do. I don't have any idea. Um, and then they put the fish back. It's supposed to be less traumatic on them. And then the fish comes to you. It's like, man, what happened? That was weird, and then swims away. Um, I, think Jesus, I think Jesus did something similar here. Um, There's a lot of things I hope are funny, and that wasn't one of them. That's all right. Um, uh, they, Jesus knows. They, they love the Hebrew Bible, right? So he's like, okay, here you go. And he does some mental and theological gymnastics here and, and stops them in their tracks, right? They're going to kill him, and, and he kind of stuns them, but not so he can escape, but so he can say one more thing to them, right? He, he, wants, he wants to point them to believe in him. Let's look at the next two verses. Verse 37, he says, If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the, and I am in the Father. It's shocking to me. Jesus has not given up on these people. I would have bailed so long ago, way before they ever picked up stones. But he, he, he's given them another chance, right? He wants them to believe. They want him dead, and he wants them to be alive by, by believing. He's pleading with them, even though you don't believe in me, just believe the works. Right? The lame walk, the blind see, all this points to me and the Father were one. I've been sent from him so that you may be saved. Just believe. 
Piper points out the end of this verse here. Uh, it says that you may know and understand, and, and, and that's the, it's the same word in Greek used there, gnosko, gnosko. So we read that you may gnosko and gnosko, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Or you could read it that, that you may know and know, or that you may, you may come to know and, and grow in knowing, or you may continue knowing. Our knowing isn't a one-time event. Our knowing is, isn't something that's stagnant. We're to continue to grow in, in our knowing of Jesus, of God. Jesus wants this crowd to know that he and the Father are one, that he's been sent by the Father to save. So believers, we need to continue to hope and pray and be ready to share with those who repeatedly reject Jesus. Right, that they might come to believe in him, that they will come to know and grow in knowing that Jesus and the Father are one, that Jesus has come to save, that they someday would be secure in the hands of God, trusting in the oneness of Jesus and the Father. Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Verse 40, uh, sorry, verse 39. I'm skipping a couple of things because of the time here. Um, but, but this ends on, verse 39, it's a bummer. You just want, or at least I find myself as a reader, I just want them to believe. Like, I just want these Jews to, to believe, but they refuse to believe. And then John gives us these last three verses. Verse 40, it says, He went away, Again, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. And to me, this is such an interesting ending, and we know it's on purpose. It's right where it's supposed to be. Jesus, he goes to the place where John the Baptist uh, has done work, John had told people about Jesus, said he, there was nothing flashy about what he did. He, he didn't do any signs. He just spoke the truth about Jesus. And then when they met Jesus, they said, man, everything John said was spot on. And then they responded to Jesus in belief. Jesus and John wants those who do not believe to come to belief. Like John the Baptist we have the task of clearly speaking and pointing to who Jesus is, putting the spotlight on Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, so that others can accurately see Jesus and the Father and by the Holy Spirit respond in faith. We're going to have our prayer team in the back for you to pray with. And there's any number of reasons that you could go back and be prayed with. But I want to throw out just a couple from our sermon today. If there's someone that you cannot even imagine trusting in Jesus, and maybe it's a family member, maybe it's someone that you actually don't even, you don't even like them. Like, they just drive you crazy. But if there's someone that, that you, you realize, like, man, I, I just think they're outside of God's reach, that God could never reach them, man, go back and, and, and be prayed for. Pray that God would soften your heart towards that, towards that person and that you, you would help share the gospel with them. Another reason to go back is if you want to believe, but you just feel stuck. There's something that's holding you back. Maybe it's something a professor said at school, or, or maybe you went through something that, in life that was just so hard, 
and maybe you're angry at God. If that's you, go back and pray. God, God would love to help you with that. Last one is that if you're stagnant in your faith, right, you came to know God, but you realize you haven't been growing for years. Maybe you come to church every week, maybe not, but you're not going anywhere. You're not, you're not continuing to know Jesus more and more. It, we're going to spend our whole lives right, reading about God, and we're never going to exhaust who Jesus is. And then we get to eternity, eternity, and we will never exhaust knowing who God is. Like that has blown my mind all week. Because I remember growing up, well, not even just growing up, probably not even that long ago, thinking, man, is, is heaven going to be boring? No. God is that amazing. Like, we will just continue to get to know how awesome God is for all of eternity. Praise the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, you're good, God. You are God. We confess it, that you are, in fact, the Christ, that we we're in need of you. We needed you to die in our place to save us from sin. Lord, I know a lot of people in here know you. Maybe most people in here know you, Jesus. Lord, will you not let us be stagnant in our faith? God, I pray for those in here that maybe don't know you, Lord, that you, God, you'd make them your own, that you'd bring about, Holy Spirit, bring about belief in them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing this next song, and then after this song, I invite you to come up and get the communion elements and then take them back to your seat. And then whenever, whenever you're ready, um, you, you, can, you can enjoy this meal with your Savior.